Have you ever told a lie? Raise your hand if you've ever told a lie. What a bunch of liars and sinners in here. Raise your hand if you just tell little white lies, little, little, little itty bitty ones. Big whoppers, right? Yes. Why do we lie? Why do we lie? What's the, what's the purpose in lying? Have you ever lied and then afterwards you thought, why in the world would I fib about something like that? Why would I portray some uh, a truth in that way? What, was, what did I gain from doing something like that? We, we, we lie sometimes to protect. There are some times where lies protect other, other folks. I think of folks that are in uh, high-risk jobs, FBI, CIA, things of that nature. There's probably things that they don't necessarily tell their spouses and so on and so forth because that's out of protection. There's something that's going on. You're, we don't really need to know everything that, it, that is happening. Uh, we know politicians lie, and I'll just leave it right at that. Uh, no, but we, uh, <laughs> we lie uh, sometimes uh, to protect feelings. You know, I've asked my wife several times. I'm like, I don't know, does this make me look fat? And she's like, no. And I know that God has struck her with blindness, and that is okay. And that is good. A lot of times we lie to possibly preserve an illusion of sorts, maybe for our children. If you think about the upcoming months that are coming up and the things that that families do, uh, be it right or wrong or where you're at on that, sometimes that happens as well. Sometimes we lie to preserve our own image, which is probably more often than not than we think about, to give others the impression that we want them to have versus what's really going on inside our hearts. I think if we all sat there for a moment, we've been probably guilty of that a time or, or two. Last night, my, my son, who thanks be to God, gives me sermon illustrations from time and time again, and uh, Carrie warns me, because Carrie was a, a pastor's kid, and she says, you know, as, <laughs> as they get older, you're going to need to find from, a, dip from another well. And I'm thinking, I don't know, this is punishment, this is good. No. Um, so we were sitting at a friend's house, and, and uh, they, were, um, they were playing with dominoes. You know those dominoes pieces, game, game pieces? And, and this house that, that we were at is, uh, is an awesome house. They've done great work, and, and uh, their basement is, is a full playroom. We have, we have playroom memory. When we go over there, the kids, my kids thought this was awesome. And so downstairs, they're just causing a ruckus in that playroom. And, and the parents of this house are like, don't worry. We're not cleaning it up. That's their playroom, which is even better as a parent because when you leave someone's house, you feel obligated to say, well, let me clean up. But you don't want to clean up. You just want to grab your children and go. <laughs> That's why we had it at their house. No. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyways, they were playing with dominoes upstairs, my son and, and the other kids, and, um, and he wanted to take a handful of the dominoes and go downstairs with them. And I said, no. I said, we're not doing that because we're not bringing one mess into another mess, and therefore then the game pieces get lost, and that's not going to happen. And so he's upset. He walks over and puts the game pieces down. And I go back to having my conversation because what I said was law. And we're not going to have more conversation about that. And as he came back, he taps me up on my, on my hip there. And, and he says, Daddy, Daddy, I don't have anything in my pocket. <laughs> don't have anything in my pocket. I said, you don't? I said, well, let me check. And so I check the one side of the pocket, and it's empty. And then I go to the other side, and you begin to see, you know, 
the expression change on his face, thinking like, how does he know? <laughs> and there he had in here was just this one domino in his pocket. I said, no, no, son, this is lying. You need to go put that back, and now, I'm sorry, you are in timeout. You get to miss some playtime with your friends. And so he did all of that, and I sat there, and I thought, well, this is going into the message tomorrow. And then I thought, why did he lie? He could have just kept on walking. He just kept on walking. Now, of course, he, was, he would be doing wrong, but he just kind of could have kept on. Something inside of him stirred inside of him to say, let me go and get dad's approval so that he can bless me for this image of purity, even though I'm stocking away something in my pocket. But we do that too, I think, when we lie. When we lie to each other, when we lie to the Lord, it's at the heart of our sinful soul to want to just kind of separate and, and say, this is, this is who I want you to know who I am versus what's actually happening inside of us. Today we turn a corner in our book of Acts study. So we're going through the book of Acts, and um, we are now going to go into chapter 5, a little bit of the end of chapter 4, going into chapter 5, and, and we turn a corner of sorts here a little bit. You see, up until now, Acts chapters 1 through 4 have been a wonderful testimony of the movement of the church, of the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit that resides, uh, that, that, um, that called the apostles into apostleship, that, that brought thousands of people into their fellowship that uh, emboldened their witness. You know how the ground shook last week? One of the other things I, I thought about with the ground shaking is that it, how that emboldens their witness is that it's shaking off the things that they're trying to hold on to that may cause fear or cause doubt. You can't be a, a, an emboldened witness if you're still trying to hold on to some of those things and you shake those loose. And now they want to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the sight of heavy persecution, in the sight of impending doom to life and limb, and yet they will, all they want to do is share this gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's Acts, Acts chapters 1 through 4. It's a great, wow, whew. I mean, the, 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 the fan, the winds of the Holy Spirit is, is just blowing. And so if we kind of stop there at Acts chapter 4, we might get a, an image that everything is all sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, everything. Anyone know that song from the movie? Yeah, that's, you kind of get that image that everything's just going great. I mean, sure, you got people who want to, you know, kill you for talking about the resurrection, but so far the, the number's being added to. And if you look at the end of chap chapter 4, you get the same, almost, almost same passage as you get at the end of Acts chapter 2. Almost so much so that sometimes commentators think there's a, a parallel structure thing happening that they want us to, to, to draw our attention to. But it gives this great little, little paragraph here at the end of chapter 4, you know, real quick. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Everything's going well. And they're all marching forward in step, a great company front. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. 
For as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any who had need. The end of, this is at the end of chapter 4. So things are going great. And no one in their company has any need because people who are just moved by the Holy Spirit or just moved by the gospel of Christ, the generosity in which they have received that Jesus would call even the likes of them who were a part of the, of the, of the, the, the religion, the, the family that killed Jesus, that they would, they would call them into that and they would experience such freedom that it just wells up inside of them and all they want to do is just be generous with what they have and let's continue to share this message. People need to know this. Have you ever had that well up inside of you? So much so that you view everything that you have in your possession as not your own, but of God's. And to, here we go, what, what, what you need, here it is, let's do this. And, and, and let's, let's, let's go on to that mission. Now let me stop here just a second, because we're going to get into now the next story, Acts chapter 5, which is a story of a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. Raise your hands if you are familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, you may be chuckling. Those who have their hands up, those who don't, you're going to hear in just a second. The reason why there's a little bit of kind of the pews kind of creaked a little bit and, and there was some chuckling is that this story of Ananias and Sapphira is about giving gone wrong, at least on the surface. And we are also starting our stewardship campaign where I have said to you, our goal this year, you'll see, but our goal this year for, for next year, 2023, is a $630,000 budget. And, and that represents probably about a, um, we looked at the math, and listen, I'm an English teacher, so if the math is wrong, I'll just recorrect it next week. But the, that, that represented a small percentage of an increase from last year, so nothing too wild, but we are really looking at as ministry teams and as leadership specific things that we really want to go after next year to help us move the mission, to help us move this movement. And so it's on, the request is on you as a congregation, where is God calling in your heart to give? We don't twist arms. We don't judge you on the amount. We don't hold up a, a standard, you must hit this, or woe to you. We just say, where, where God is stirring in your heart, the generosity and the, the freedom in which you have received, you pray, you talk to the Lord, and you offer a number that he has called you to give. And you give that out of delight and out of joy and out of freedom and not out of bondage and out of grief or anything else. But then we get the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you begin to think, well, what are you preaching on here, Mike? So at the end of Acts chapter 4, this great movement, this great Spirit is moving through the same Spirit. There is unity. There are people who are giving up all of their possessions at the apostles' feet, and they are doing that voluntarily. That is not something that has necessarily been mandated of them. Sometimes you may hear that passage preached that the real Christian church is one that gives, that has people selling their land and they live in communes. I don't necessarily see it in there. You may be able to make an argument. I kind of see it more as this was something that they were voluntarily doing to help with the mission. But then we turn the corner and we get to Ananias and Sapphira. 
And Ananias and Sapphira connects to the story of, of, of where we're at in chapter 4, even though it's separated by chapters, but Luke didn't write that way, so this is connected to, to where we're leaving off in chapter 4. And it's a sobering reminder, not so much of giving gone wrong, but of how sin is encroaching at the door of this great movement. If we left Acts chapter 4 with nothing else, we'd be thinking, they are on fire, go, march on, great. But Luke is calling our attention that even the church is not exempt from sinful behavior. And the Lord is going to do something and work in this to try to send a message that there are certain things that do not belong in this great body of fellowship of unity, this great church. And it's, it's jarring, and we're going to have to look at it. And any time that I look at jarring things in Scripture, I like to ask it questions because it's in Scripture for a reason. I can't get beyond it. So let's ask it some questions and try to figure out why is this story here. But for us today, it is going to remind us of the importance of integrity and being honest, honest with ourselves, honest with each other, and honest with God. And that when we are dishonest, when we lie to the Lord, when we hold something back in our pockets, it's, it's, really, it's really foolish. It, 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 it misunderstands Psalm 139 where it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? To think that we are so powerful that we can hide something from God is, 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 is possibly something that may be tripping your life up if you really thought about it. So let's get into it. Let's look here. So we're in here, Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to read from 436 to 511. It's page 1084, 1085 in the Pew Bibles. Let's go ahead and look through those things here and hear what, what has happened. So I've set it up that there's a jarring story that is about to affect this great movement, this great awesome thing that's happening in Acts chapter uh, 4. Let's see what's going on. So here now at verse 36, I just read to you earlier about all the unity and, and the proceeds and everything's going great. Verse 36, Acts chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles, apostles? <laughs> who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Isn't that great of Joseph? And Barnabas there, um, this is the Barnabas. This is Paul and his friend Barnabas the, uh, that we'll meet a little bit later in Acts. It's the cousin of, uh, he's related to uh, Mark, the gospel writer Mark. So this guy's got some, some street cred that's coming. So he's very important. And so he has this act of generosity where he sells his land and lays the full proceeds at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? That's what makes me think that the giving of the lands and things like that was a little, was more, more or less voluntary than mandated. As he questions Ananias, you had this land in your possession, you sold it, the money was in your hands. What, where was the disconnect now that we're going to now take part of that and portray as we're leaving everything here? You possibly just could have done nothing and nothing, no harm, no foul at the moment. Why, why did you do that, he says to him. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart that you have not lied to man but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. <sighs> yeah, fell down, breathed his last, period. That's dead. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Now his wife, who was sitting out in the car waiting for him to come out now, after an interview of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, now tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. She doubles down, she goes with the, the scheme that has been laid out. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Wouldn't it be neat if we, our security greeters, were just perched at the door, ready to carry out any sinful people in our midst that fall down dead? No. <laughs> I would be first. <laughs> oh my gosh, but there they are at the door. They're ready to carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came, they found her dead. They carried her out, buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of those things. This is the word of the Lord, everybody. Thanks be to God. The tough teaching, right? Who in the room? This is usually not one that's preached on a lot because how do you get around the whole gracious, peaceful, merciful God and two people have now been struck down dead because they lied. Because they lied to the Lord. So my first question as I looked at this, I was thinking, okay, one, it's our Stewardship Sunday. So this is kind of weird that this would be at the same time. I don't want people leaving here thinking that if you don't give enough, we have the security guards at the door to get you out of here. <laughs> That's not the teaching. Giving, although, is very important. Don't go that side either. The act of giving of our, of our possessions, of our, of, our, of our resources, of our time, talent, treasure, the act of offering that up to the Lord needs to be a full action. It does not need to be, okay, God, you get one, I get two. It, does need, it needs to be a full faith action. So don't leave here thinking that it's not important. But this, this passage is getting to an underlying, deeper issue at hand that could affect the witness of this church and the witness of any church. So my first question here, seeing two people falling over dead so quickly is how did it escalate so quickly? How did things go from this little lie that he is presenting only part of his proceeds to now Ananias and his wife Sapphira dead on the church floor? Like that, things, things elevated very quickly here. 
So let's examine this. A couple weeks ago, I said that in a message that the, this early church seems to be mirroring Jesus's ministry. How the church's first kind of act of business was to heal uh, the man who was sick, who the, the lame man, and that Jesus's first act of ministry when he started was also these healings that have happened. And we can kind of maybe expect the church to fall kind of in lockstep with Jesus, the things that Jesus experienced that they would experience too, including persecution. Well, I think I see a mirror here as well. Just as Jesus had the 12 disciples, and he was working on those 12 disciples, and they were friends, and they were counted among, and they were all at the table that we're going to be at the table here in a minute, this great sign of unity and grace. There was one in the midst that was actively working against. There was one in the midst that too was holding back things from the ministry. His name was Judas, and that, and that is exactly what he did. He was, he was in charge of the treasury. And he was, he was called out for keeping parts of the treasury for himself. Uh, judging Jesus for using treasury funds in, in, a, in a certain way. Or when the, the woman came to, with the alabaster jar of oil and, and, and dumped it over his head, he's, in, he's, he's all upset. He's like, why would you waste such money like that? Well, now here in the church, and they're ready to go. The ministry's moving, and everything's going great. It's a sobering reminder that even amongst the faithful, even amongst the fellowship, there could be people that are not necessarily all in. They've got one foot in the pool. They're, they're holding some back. In fact, that word to hold back means to steal. So when Peter says, why did you hold back the proceeds? He's saying, why did you steal from the Holy Spirit? Why did you take that what was not from yours and hold it back as if it was? Annas and, Annas, Ananias and Sapphira are doing those very same things that, that Judas did, and it kind of illuminates the status of their sinful hearts, or at least where they're acting from. They are being double-minded. Everyone say double-minded. There is a book in the Bible, James, who really talks about double-mindedness and partiality. We don't have time to look at it today, but I would encourage you to go to the book of James and read chapters 1, 2, and 3 about this idea of double-mindedness, partiality, and kind of holding things back from God. In fact, what James says is that double-mindedness and partiality leads to temptation. And what all temptation does, it just magnifies the desires that were already there. That's the real kick in the pants. Whenever you sin and you give in to temptation, you're doing the very thing that you want to do, even though you know you're not supposed to. But it just magnifies that desire. So James says temptation magnifies those desires. It leads to sinning against God, which then ultimately leads to where? Anyone know? Where does sin lead you? Death. Death. It's to split yourselves up. It's to compartmentalize. It's to say that, God, you get this hour of my life, but you do not get to have my friends. You get to have this part of my prayer life, but you do not get to have my family. And you don't get to have what I do at work. And you don't get to have what I do behind the wheel of the car when someone cuts me off. You don't get to have any of those things. Those are mine to deal with. You can have my hour and a half on Sunday morning, depending on who's preaching, 
and that's what you can have. You can have part of my funds, but the rest of them, I'm holding them back. We compartmentalize. And then the worst thing that Ananias and Sapphira did was that they held it up as an image of perfect spirituality. Just in the same vein that Joseph gave everything and laid it at the apostles' feet, they're trying to do the same thing, but they held some back. So they want everyone else to think, hey, look at us. Look at what we did. Look at all this great thing. Maybe we'll get a new name too. And they're more concerned about the image of their spirituality versus the reality of their spiritual selves. It's kind of like Instagram Christianity. Anyone familiar with Instagram? Y'all know what Instagram is? Social media. And it's very, very picture forward. It's not so much like Facebook where you can write things. Instagram is more like, here's the best picture of what's going on. These iPhones are great. Do you all have an iPhone? These iPhones are fantastic that you can take them out and take a picture of somebody. And when you take a picture of somebody, you don't just take one picture. You take 10 pictures of the same pose. Like that. And then you hand it back to the person and say, I took 10. And you can pick the best picture out of those 10. And that's the one that you can post on your social or give to people, etc. Gone are the days of photo albums, those old photo albums at your mom's or grandmother's house or even your own house, you know, with the sticky pages and like the thing that, yeah, and you just look through and you look at all the horrible pictures that are in there because you used to only have 25 pictures and whatever the one you took, that's the one you took and that's the one that you got. Gone are those days because you can get the best picture. And Instagram, that's what happens with Instagram. They, you can pick the best picture, curate the background the best that you want it to be, and strike that pose and put that out and say, this is who I am and not the crazy mess that might be going on behind it. We may do that in our own faith walk as well. How many of you ever had an argument on the way to church, you've heard this before, on the way to church in the car, you've had an argument where you're trying to get all three kids into a Suburban. Do you know what it's like to buckle kids in the backseat of a Suburban? It's not pretty. And the neighbors are looking at you because you're on your way to church and you're like, get in the car! You know, you're just kind of yelling at them. And then you hit the church <laughs> doors and you walk in and you're like, yeah, we've, we've got our stuff together. You know, everything's nice and neat. It's this image well, that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. And I think for God's purposes, and we'll get to the next question, like what's God teaching us here? He's not about that. You are imperfect messes. You are sinful people. And from God's point of view, he's like, I need you to know and understand that and reconcile that and humble yourselves and follow me and knowing that I will take care of those things. And that the more that you abide with me and the more that you dwell with me and walk with me with your full selves, not just part, we can handle this desire to sin. Hopefully this will become less and less and less. Not free from it until you die, but less and less and less. But if you're going to come at me with just one foot, with just one part of your mind, a partial self, well, then we can't do this. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's what we see here with Ananias and Sapphira. And the big teaching lesson for the church, to know that acts of jealousy 
and, and comparison, that he's comparing himself to, to Joseph and, and, and these things. This is what can really upend the movement of the church. There's a fuzzy. There we go. Go away, fuzzy. Can really upend the movement of the church. I mean, James even kind of says that in his, in, his, in his book, if you go look at it, that it really can just destroy it. And so I think what God is doing and the fact that, that these two find their death is he's fiercely protecting the church. He's fiercely protecting the movement. Ananias and Sapphira die because of their sins. And we just need to just sit with that and know that one day you and I will also die because of our sins. But we also know there's another story because of our faith. I don't know where Ananias and Sapphira's faith was. They might be up in heaven. I don't know. It doesn't say. But what it does say is that they, in a moment of great weakness and temptation, gave in to their desires, and they decided, Lord, this movement sounds great, and we want to be a part of it. We're not sure where this is going to go, so we're going to stock away some so that if this all goes to pot, we at least can rise above the ashes. And that's just a different posture that the Lord wants. If you remember the book of Revelation, the lukewarm church, John records Jesus saying, you're neither hot nor cold. I'd rather you be one or the other. It's almost like Jesus said, I'd rather, know where, I'd rather see that you know where you stand. You're either hot and you're all in or you're cold and, and, and you're not in at all. And you've, you've walked away from this movement. But at least we know where you stand. But this lukewarm business here, this one foot in, one foot out, John records Jesus saying about this church, I spit you out. No one likes lukewarm things. Which, that preaches, but have you ever had lukewarm pizza? It's pretty good. God is fiercely, fiercely protecting his church. He wants us to, be, to fully abide with him. And in the gospel of John, fully abide meaning to dwell fully and be with him. Branches that don't do that are either pruned so that they can bear fruit, get rid of some of that stuff, or they're cut off altogether as not producing fruit and they're thrown in so that the tree can still be preserved and grow and bear fruit. This was swift, righteous judgment. Peter did not cast these two dead. Don't look at Peter thinking he's the great somebody, but look at Peter of how far he's come. To look at these two with supernatural knowledge now that something is awry and to say to Ananias, why has Satan ruined your heart? Why have you allowed that to happen? Peter, the one who allowed the same thing to happen and deny his Savior three full times. What a great act of redemption. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself to see him now here and, and trying to work with this body of people. But Peter didn't strike him down dead. This came from God. Peter does not have that power. This swift judgment came from the Lord himself to say that he is not allowing disunity, dishonesty, and jealousy to be into this movement. Now, we know, of course, that with, as the church has continued to grow and more and more people, obviously, these elements are within our midst. So this now is a great call for us all to try to rise above that, to not fall into the, the temptation of putting out an image for people to say, this is who I am. To all of our brothers and sisters in this room, 
say, this is what you get to know. But instead, to preserve the unity and the fellowship of the church, to say, I am a sinner just like you, struggling just like you, to seek out people who could possibly help you with the things that you're tempted with, and to know that that person isn't going to look at you and think, oh my goodness, you are a mess but to look at you and pray with you and walk through it with you, whatever the things that are getting in the way. To have that vulnerability, that fullness of self. That's what God's after in this, in this because everything before the Lord is laid bare. He knows it. And so he calls us together to, 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 to build each other up in that way. And so when Ananias and Sapphira come in, they say, here's, here's our offering Look at me, I got nothing in my pocket. And they've got their little domino piece. The Lord says, you're neither hot nor cold and I spit you out. This is a sobering message now. We've had great Holy Spirit movement and now here a reminder that even within the midst, they've got their outside persecution forces but also within the midst, we need to be mindful that the evil one tries to work with those temptations. He doesn't cause us to sin. We do it, but boy, he'll magnify those up for us. And to know that there are people here in our fellowship, in our midst, who will stand beside us, pray with us, and help us with this great movement called the church. On the night in which the Lord was to be betrayed, actually not walking up, so I have to move this, he grabbed his disciples together around this table, which is also a great symbol of unity which is also a great symbol of grace, which is also a great uh, um, call to us all to humble ourselves and to receive from the Lord. He gathers all of his disciples, Judas included, around the table. He took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, which is the cup of salvation, and he poured out the wine, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And as often as you do this, do this in the remembrance of me. It is for the forgiveness of all your sins. And the Apostle Paul says that as often as we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. One unified fellowship, one unified church, one heart, one soul, one mind. We proclaim the Lord. We witness to his gospel. And we don't allow the things of discord and disunity to quiet and silence that for others. Lord, we thank you for this meal, for what it represents and for what it can do within us as we take it, as the Holy Spirit continues to teach and remind us of your truth. So, Lord, let that happen today as we take it today. Let us be reminded of our sins and that you have forgiven them and be thankful for the meal that seals us together in your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The body of Christ is broken for you and the blood of Christ is shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins.